welcome. Today is um, episode seven of our Shooter Series Injury podcast. Um, we have Sarah Cunliffe, who is um, a, a member of staff of Shooter Series Injury, who will be having an open discussion with some input from myself as well with um, counsel from Ropewalk Chambers. Uh, Gareth McAloon. Um, the topic today is um, inquests. Um, we'll be tapping into um, mainly Sarah's expertise um, of uh, inquests and, and obviously Gareth's as well, um, going from um, inquests that involve care homes and personal injury. And we may tap into some medical negligence um, based inquests as well, though there will be a dedicated um, episode to that later in the year. Um, Now, the the topic in itself, obviously, um, for people who uh, aren't a fay with the this area of law um it, it is it can be quite emotional for families to go through um this process it's essentially an investigation of the cause um of death of someone and i um think it will be really interesting for um existing practitioners and um people who are new to the area to learn about what this process involves um and and it may be that um hopefully not but it, that one day this process has been needed by someone you know um or indeed uh, by yourself as uh, by yourself and it's really good to have the empowerment of information to know what it involves how it all works and 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 how it operates in practice so um initially sarah is going to very helpfully go through um when the inquests arise and um, mainly in the context of the cases that she's um, had experience of them. I'll uh, pass over to you, Sarah. Thanks, Sharon. So first of all, it's important to remember that inquests aren't always carried out on every single death in a care home. An inquest is only carried out into a death which appears to be sudden, unknown, violent or unnatural causes. And the purpose of an inquest is to find out who has passed away, when, where and how they died. My experience, as I've said previously, is in relation to care home deaths. And today I'm going to take you through a case that I've dealt with at an inquest a few years ago and then subsequently went on to deal with a civil claim for the family. Now, we were approached by the family shortly after the death of their loved one. She was a relatively young lady who lived uh, in a care home because she had dementia. So as a result of her dementia, she didn't have capacity to make any reasoned choices or decisions. And she was admitted into a care home as she'd previously been at home and had a fall. She was in hospital recovering from her fracture, which was sustained in in the home, when it was noted that she was having difficulty swallowing. In fact, she had some food in the hospital and choked on it. So she was referred internally to the SALT team, who are the speech and language therapy team, and a decision was made to put her on a modified diet, which meant that she couldn't have solid foods. When she was discharged to the care home, the care home were advised of that, but unfortunately she continued to have episodes where she did choke on items, including pieces of cake um, and things such as that. Now, the first care home that this lady moved into um, was a care home which was operated by HC1, and they did their own assessment of the lady when she moved into their care. 
Within a short period of time, however, the lady moved to a second care home. Again, it was a HC1 operated care home. But unfortunately, when the lady moved, a new assessment as to her choking risk wasn't undertaken. The difficulties then came at around um, July, August 2016. A lady was seen by a member of staff and was asked what she wanted to eat for her dinner. As I said at the outset, this was a lady that had dementia, so unfortunately couldn't make reasoned decisions as to what her choice of foods, you know, what impact it could have on her. Out of the two options, she decided to opt for chicken nuggets. So her meal was delivered to her bedroom a, a half an hour or so later. Unfortunately, this lady, because she had a history of issues with food, should not have been left alone to eat and should not have been given that choice. Unfortunately, after eating her evening meal, about 40 minutes later, one of the carers went back into her room and the lady was found unresponsive. Despite attempts to resuscitate the lady, she sadly passed away. And then that's where we became involved, just as a um, inquest was directed. Now, as part of the inquest, we had to um, represent the family and get lots of information from their care home, in particular in relation to the previous choking incidents. And we had to get and look through her hospital notes and records and the assessments that were done by the SALT team. As part of those investigations, as I've said, it transpired that this lady had a number of incidents, both in the hospital and at Care Home 1 and Care Home 2, when she choked on a number of items. And in fact, it appeared that the SALT team had reassessed to this lady at some point prior to going into the second care home. But unfortunately, this second care home didn't um, review the letter from the SALT team and didn't carry out their own review. So, in fact, gave the lady completely inappropriate food, as well as obviously letting her make the decision herself as to what she wanted to eat. Now, the inquest proceeded um, a few years ago, um, and the outcome of the inquest was that this lady um, had sadly passed away from the uh, from choking on food, and the coroner was concerned that this might happen to other people. So what the coroner did on this particular case is that she issued what is called a prevention of future deaths report. And what that is, in a nutshell, is she wrote to the CQC, setting out her concerns so that steps could be taken uh, by care homes to try and prevent this from happening again. And it was then following that inquest that we then went on to pursue successfully a civil claim for the family. Sarah, just before we kind of carry on, um, prior to the inquest happening, how much information, how much investigation had, had taken place into what happened? Um, was there information readily available to the family as to what had happened or were they struggling to 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 get any information? The family were struggling. They knew of obviously the choking incident in the hospital, which resulted in the initial SALT referral and the initial modified diet, but they weren't aware that there'd been previous incidents in Care Home 1 and Care Home 2. And they weren't aware that she'd been reassessed 
from a stage four to a stage three modified diet. And these are pieces of uh, information that came out uh, as part of the document gathering and investigation process, if you like, prior to the inquest taking place. So the inquest on this occasion was actually quite crucial to the information um, and, and, and investigation of errors in the case. And, and, and I'm sure we'll kind of go on to speak about the civil litigation. But it, it appears to me that um, the, the documentation and the gathering process, as you referred to it, was was really important for the family to, to empower them with more information Um taking it away from the legal process, but just pure information as to what had happened. Um, and I can imagine that was of, although it would have been difficult to hear, it would have been beneficial for them to know what exactly had had, had taken place. Yeah, that, that's that's right. Obviously, what the family thought had happened um, did happen, but they weren't aware of the full extent yeah. of the issues that their, their loved one had had leading up to her death and previous instance within the home. Okay, um, and I mean, I suppose that taking this forward, um, you said that you had the inquest, and then there was civil litigation um, afterwards. How did that all kind of tie in? How how did the inquest go? How did the the, the litigation process follow from that? Well, as I said, the, the coroner issued a Regulation 28 yeah. uh, report, which um, is a prevention of future deaths report. So the defendants found it would find it quite hard, particularly bearing in mind the, the findings of the coroner at the inquest to dispute breach of duty on this one. And in fact, breach of duty wasn't uh, in dispute and the matter did resolve relatively quickly. Um, the the case didn't have to be litigated, which means mm. that we didn't have to commence court proceedings, which, again, um, you know, if you have to litigate, it can drag things out for the family. And in, in your own experience and Gareth's as your, yours as well, um, how easy is it to get coroners to issue this type of a re a report? Um, it, it's, is it something that happens regularly or is it something that would only really happen in the most serious of cases or obvious of cases, should I say? I think from my expertise or my experience, it, it's where there's evidence that suggests that it could happen again, then the, in the coroner feels that preventative steps need to be taken, then they will issue a Regulation 28 report. I've had this now on a couple of inquests that I've done um, you know, sometimes it is just um, something that, that can't be prevented and the, the, the report won't take us any further forward. But in this particular case, sadly, with residents being given the choice and being given incorrect meals and the risks not being fully addressed and assessed, it could quite easily happen again. Yeah, I think I would also pick up on that and say that it, it really obviously depends on the facts of a particular circumstance of death. I think that from a coroner's point of view, a future deaths report really does in, indicate two things. Firstly, is the degree of causative relevance that the matters which are the subject of the report has had on the death. In other words, they are a strong statement by a coroner that a particular incident has had a real contribution to a death. Um, and therefore the ramifications of it were significant. And the second aspect then is obviously the potential for it to reoccur. 
in the future. And that normally is an indication that there is a breakdown in procedure or system which is occurring or could occur on a regular basis and therefore contribute in the same way that it did to this death to other deaths in the future. So they are a really significant and important step, both in the uh, coronial process, but also then in giving an indication in terms of a subsequent civil claim as to the real strengths um, of allegations that then need to be followed up in the civil proceedings. I think coroners are, in some cases, reluctant to make them because they realise just how significant making them is to cases. Um, and you'll get other coroners who are a bit more liberal in making them. Um, but I think one way or the other, one thing you can always take away from them is that they are a really significant move for a coroner to take. And they only take them in those really serious circumstances where they have those big concerns as to the potential for its impact on other deaths in the future. So I guess um, from a, a a family's perspective or a claimant's perspective, um, if they're looking at the inquest process and, and looking what they can get out of it, I think it's it, it, from what you both said, what an important point is um, that the Im impact may go beyond even addressing um, uh, the, the death that, that they're investigating and there could be a, a public interest element to to what they're doing um and i i've i mean i from my own experience of inquests i've often had um clients say to me um it's it's not just about this death i, I want to avoid this happening to to someone else um i had uh, i was speaking to you both earlier about an inquest that i was involved in yesterday and that's the, the parents of the child that passed away it's the one thing that they really focused on that they didn't want another family to have to go through what they have. So I think for, for anyone who's about to embark on this, something like this, it's really important they have that information that it, it, it is possible, not guaranteed, that what they're doing could benefit others. Um, and I'm sure you both had experience of when that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, Sarah and I are working on a case at the moment where we, um, Sarah did the inquest in that and I've picked up um, and been instructed in the civil litigation um, where we had a future death report on that. And the the main aspects that have come out of that, in that particular case, it's a really simple um, aspect about how medical equipment is stored and accessed um, within a care home. Um, and really quite simple and straightforward. It's just never thought about by the care home in question. Um, but obviously that has a potential, um, you know, for other care homes to think about the way in which they store that medical equipment. Um, and so in that case, for example, it's actually quite a wide ranging thing that it could affect in terms of the numbers of people in care homes who it could affect. Um, and I do think that it's really important when you are considering an inquest. This is one of those sort of scenarios really where you're not just looking at your case you, you are looking over the horizon and more broadly at the next one or the next one after that and um, I think it is important that clients understand the impact that their particular inquest can have on the well-being of others who are still in care yeah. homes for example um, and the way that they are then treated going forward and indeed you know in some of these cases these future um, prevention of future death uh, reports are often sent to particularly the care home setting um, the care quality commission and they then can issue guidance to every care home conceivably in the country um, to make them aware of a particular issue that has arisen so that's how wide-ranging and how far the reaches of these reports potentially um, and it goes well beyond as you said Sharon the, the inquest that you're dealing with necessarily yeah 
Yeah, and I think that's a really good takeaway from this session. Now, kind of just speaking about the um, inquest process in itself, um, what I thought would be really useful is for the both of you to kind of discuss from someone who, from the perspective of someone who has never been through the process, um, what it means to have legal representation during the process, what actually happens um, on an inquest, in an inquest, and and how and the pr- preparation involved for it. Well, I think the, the first thing to remember is that inquest can be extremely upsetting, and sometimes for the family, it's easier for them if they've got somebody to assist them, i.e. a lawyer, um, to assist them in asking the questions. Sometimes when families read papers that come through from the coroner's office, it's just a jumble. They, you know, they um, don't want to deal with the, the stress and the upset of it, whereas a solicitor can look through the information and digest it and have a, a, a discussion with the family as to what it all means and um discuss with them what they want to get out of the inquest and what questions they think that they want answers to. Uh, Gareth, I don't know if you'd add anything there. Um, Yeah, I I think the only thing I I would ask um, or to really sort of throw into that is that really don't underestimate the process. Um, And I think that's really tempting at first. You know, if you put yourself in in family's position, I don't know how many clients have told me um, or expressed it in these ways, but they, they normally say something like, well, we were told that the inquest would just be routine and that it's been routinely referred to the coroner. Well, that, that might be right. The, re- the referral to the coroner has followed a certain routine because there are set procedures in there. But don't then underestimate the inquest process as being routine itself. It's actually more than that. It's really quite a significant hearing that you're going to. And obviously it does, as you say, touch on the emotive side in it. But I think that can perhaps lead to people underestimating the process that they go and and also what the purpose of the inquest is actually for. And certainly then once lawyers get involved, actually, I think then they realise actually there's a lot more to this than we thought. And actually, there's a lot more that we can start looking at um, in that regard. And obviously, that's really the purpose of bringing the lawyer into the equation. And do you find that um, families are, f- are fully knowledgeable as to what a coroner is looking at in terms of the outcome of an inquest or the investigation process? Um, my my experience kind of just bringing it fast forward is that often the family don't. And if, if they've contacted a solicitor about litigation, and, and, and let's be frank about the litigation, the outcome very often is compensation, they might be forgiven for thinking that the inquest process would always facilitate that um and 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 i, I mean i'll leave it to, to you both to discuss how perhaps sometimes it doesn't i think from my personal um experience i think the families think that an inquest is going to lay blame at the hands mm. of, of the care home when that's not what the purpose of an inquest is you know, it's to look at, as I said at the beginning, who who died, when they died, how they died, etc. Yes, there will be issues that would need to be addressed, but ultimately the coroner's not there to say, care home, you did X, Y and Z wrong, you're at fault, so there's now going to be criminal charges. And I think that's the first thing that I always tell the family and, and set out exactly what the inquest is there for and what they can expect and then how that can help going forward with a civil claim. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other the sort of other end of the spectrum then is you get the the families who really just sort of assume, if you like, that the, the purpose of the inquest is really just, just a means or a mechanism to get the death certificate. Um, and so they can get, you know, the, the things moving that they need to to get the estate in order. Um, and therefore, they sort of view the process not as a box ticking exercise, but certainly, you know, something not far off it, um, which is sort of streamlined and straightforward and which, they, you know, necessarily a lot of attention isn't being paid to. Um, and then I think sometimes it, it can take them by surprise. Actually, there's a lot more to this once they start actually engaging with the coroner um and again you know that's the other end of the spectrum really from what sarah was talking about but i think generally there's very few clients i think who i've spoken to who would say that after the inquest has been concluded that what happened at the inquest and the leading up to the inquest matched their expectation of what the inquest would be when they were first notified about it um, i think it's always actually quite a lot different yeah yeah, and I'd agree with that. Um, I think kind of touching back on what Sarah, Sarah, point Sarah was making earlier is that, um, especially when it comes to prevention of future death reports, or even without that, I think one thing that the inquest can be good for if we're linking it in with, with the civil litigation is providing that early level of investigation, which perhaps in other cases, say non-fatal cases, you would never get anywhere near um, and can give you the basis of uh, a claim. Equally, you may look at the evidence and think, well, actually, there may be issues here. And you could we're at least in a position as lawyers to be able to advise our clients of that early on. Um, and it, it, in terms of an investigative process, it almost, um, I, I sometimes refer to it as kind of like a, a, a although it's not, a, a mini trial of the evidence because there is at least an opportunity to speak to the key um, clinicians involved or, or personnel uh, on occasion um, and and also importantly from the family's perspective they get to give their own evidence as well so I, I, I often do think it does facilitate civil litigation quite well. Yeah I think and, and something that Sarah came across really in her case um, which she was discussing earlier with the, with the inquest in the care home that she dealt with um, which I think is is sort of a misnomer sometimes for people is that I think they often look at sort of in, uh, reports done by regulators into the death, um, it, whether it's social services who've done a report because it was somebody who lacked capacity or whether it's, for example, a, a care quality commission or an NHS trust's internal investigation report into a death. I think sometimes families can often assume that that is the inquest if you like, or that the inquest really is, is there really just to rubber stamp that process and say, well, there, there you go, there's your conclusions. Um, and I think it's actually really important, and it's a message that really comes out of Sarah's case that she discussed earlier, don't assume that those reports are comprehensive or that the conclusions that they reach uh, are actually ones that are binding, firstly, on a coroner and secondly, upon a, a county court judge um, when they then come to do any civil proceedings. Actually, those reports are only only as good as the information that they were based on. And if that information is incomplete, as it was in Sarah's case, and that's something that, you know, a lawyer got to the bottom of in that particular instance, um, that can change everything as to whether or not those conclusions were validly reached or not. Um, and so it is important um, that, that, you know, that people don't make the misunderstanding that that report really is the final word. It's not. Okay, that's really useful. Thank you, Gareth. Um, and then 
as we're kind of coming to the end of this podcast, I just wanted to kind of bring things up to date. Um, we've obviously coming up to two years of uh, COVID and that like in many areas of law, has had its impact on inquests. Um, there have been significant backlogs um, in in inquests taking place, understandably, because the court system has been backed up. Um, what have you found has been the impact in terms of how um, the, the the inquests are being held? What 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 is the impact of COVID? And I suppose a new way of working as well with remote working being at the fore. Um, how, how is it all operating in practice at the moment? Um, I think I mean I, I hope I don't mind and go first, Sarah, on on this yeah. question. I think for my um, sort of personal experience, and I've done several inquests um, now in the um, kind of the pandemic, so to speak. Um, I think there's three things that I've noticed, um, which I will call trends. And in saying that, I, I do caveat with the fact that every coroner is different in their approach. Um, but the three things I've noticed, obviously, the first thing is that there's more now done via video um, than ever before. Um, I've done one or two now where we've done a hybrid of um, some uh, the family, for example, being in person, and that I was actually allowed to go along with the family um, as well, but everybody else was called um, via video. Um, but I have not done a fully in-person inquest in the pandemic. Um, and I'll be honest, um, I think that the video uh, hearings are probably here to stay, particularly in the more uh, modest inquest of, of, in terms of time. Um, I think the other thing is that there has been a general narrowing of the scope of the inquiry in, in the inquest um, by coroners, so that perhaps their scope is not as wide as it probably was before the pandemic. Um, whether that's because there's a backlog or just a genuine shift to try and keep things more, as they would put it, on point, um, I don't know. But I do think that seems to be a feature. Um, and that really then emphasises the importance of the pre-inquest review hearing where you have that discussion with the coroner as to what the scope should be. Um, and that's now a really important hearing for that. And obviously, it's important to have your house in order as to where you want to go with things in the inquest by that stage. And then I think that the third thing is then the timing of inquests. I think there has been a shortening of the length of inquests, generally speaking, and things now that would take more than a day are being sort of shoehorned into a day. Um, and that obviously does make matters more time pressured in the inquest itself when it happens. Um, but it also, again, underlines the importance of being prepared when you go into that inquest because you're not going to have the overnight thinking time that you might have have had pre-pandemic uh, pre uh, where you can revisit issues uh, which occur to you overnight because, you know, that's just the way of the process sometimes. Actually, you need to be a lot more prepared and a lot more focused now in where you go in the inquest and the questions that you ask of witnesses um, to make sure that you get in that time um, and you make the most of the short time now that's being made available to you. Yeah, I think that's I think you've summed it up really well there, Gareth. That's certainly I mean, the, the, the inquest that I had yesterday was uh, fully remote. Um, I got the impression that that's the way things are, are going unless there's exceptional circumstances. And I'm sure you would probably agree, Sarah. Um, I think we've now come to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Sarah and Gareth. It was really um interesting conversation on what is actually quite a difficult topic to talk about. Um, I think as a practitioner, and then when you're having to deal with inquests, they can be really difficult. But um, I think us having summed up um, the, the focus on care homes because they're that's the type of work that um, Sarah focuses on. And But I think it demonstrates 
inquests quite well in a wider field as it is, because we've spoken about the relevance to civil litigation, um, about prevention of future death reports and, and the wider um, impact that inquests can have on um, public interest. And I think that's really important, um, whether you're going through the process or not, to know that um, if there's an inquest taking place, it isn't always just about one death. It can actually be about multiple or or have a focus on preventing multiple in the future. Um, we, we've obviously spoken about the purpose of um, inquests and um, how they facilitate civil litigation. Um, and, and just uh, now Gareth has, has given a really good overview as to what we see the future of how inquests are going to be uh, conducted is. And, and I think given the new way in which everyone's working, a lot will be um, remote. Um, it perhaps will assist the um, service to work a bit quicker and to, to work through the backlog that there is at the moment. Um, and then and as a final point, I think one thing that it was without a doubt that has been a thread throughout the discussion today is that although um, a family can actually attend an inquest without legal representation, there are so many complexities involved in the information that you're handling um, and in the um, the reports that you may be reviewing, um, that having legal representation, it can be really valuable and can provide some, an element of emotional support. You can, you as a family can actually listen to the evidence rather than worrying about asking questions or worrying about whether you're understanding the process enough. Um, and so if there is anyone who's listening to this podcast, having recently suffered uh, a death, I think it's it's really important you reach out and get some legal advice. It may be that after you've spoken to a solicitor, you decide it's not for you, but um, very often is the case. If you're looking at civil litigation afterwards, it, it, it works quite well to get legal representation involved at the inquest point. Um, earlier rather than later um but yeah thank you very much to both of you and um thank you to our listeners for listening thank you thank you